We're going to be in Psalm 33 together this morning, so go and grab your Bibles and start turning there with me. Um, if you haven't been here with us over the last couple years, what we've done is uh, when we finished a book study, so we just finished a study in Colossians last week, and when we finished a book study, we've been turning our attention to the Psalms for a little while. Um, as you know, the Psalms uh, are by far the longest book in the Bible, 150 chapters. Uh, altogether, they make up about 2,500 verses. And so what that means is, is if we just preach directly through the Psalms, or we started in Psalm 1 and went to Psalm 150, it would take us a very, very, very long time. And so what we've been doing instead of that is we've been taking the Psalms in little bite-sized pieces. So we'll take six or eight or ten Psalms at a time as we get in between our different book studies. And every time we turn back to the Psalms, it is uh, a breath of fresh air to my soul. The Psalms are good for me. And I hope they're that way for you as well. One of the things that I've said so many times as we've studied the Psalms over the last couple of years, you probably, you should have it memorized by now, is that one of the great things about Psalms is that not only do they speak to us, but they also speak for us. I love that description of the Psalms. So on the one hand, yes, the Psalms speak to us. This is part of inspired scripture. So our great God speaks to us through the Psalms. We hear God's voice. We know God better through the Psalms. But the Psalms also speak for us, meaning that in the Psalms, we learn how to speak back to God. This is one of the reasons why Psalms over the centuries has been one of the favorite books in the Bible for so many Christians. It's because no matter what situation you find yourself in in life, no matter what your emotional state is, you can find a psalm that will help you express your heart to God. And so we're going to spend the next, I don't know, six or eight weeks in the psalm, starting with Psalm 33. And if your Bible's open there, uh, Psalm 33 is labeled as a psalm of praise. So it begins with the psalmist calling us to worship God. And then after he calls us to worship God, he begins to load us down with reasons why we should worship God. And one of the unique things about this psalm, you'll notice, is that there is no, uh, it's called a superscription, there's no heading to this psalm. So most of the psalms, especially in the first book of psalms, is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. And most of the psalms in the first book of psalms have some kind of heading to them, where we're told the author of the psalm. Sometimes we're even told the setting it was written in. Uh, occasionally even, we're told the, the, the tune that the psalm was supposed to be sung to. But you'll notice in Psalm 33 that there's no heading to it. We're not told who the author is. But there's a very clear connection between Psalm 33 and the psalm that came right before it. In fact, notice how Psalm 32 ends. Psalm 32 Verse 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now notice how Psalm 33 begins. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Do you see how the same language is getting repeated? So Psalm 32 ends by saying, Rejoice, you righteous. And then Psalm 33 begins, Rejoice, you righteous. Psalm 32 ends calling the upright to praise God. Psalm 33 begins calling the upright to praise God. Psalm 32 ends saying, Shout for joy. 
And then Psalm 33, verse 3 says, shout for joy. And so I just want you to see there's a connection. So it's very likely the author of Psalm 32 is also the author of Psalm 33. So even though it's not listed, I think David is most likely the author of this song. Psalm 33 seems to be a kind of overflow of Psalm 32. Okay, so with that in mind, let's just read this psalm together. We're going to read it in its entirety. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 1, it says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he's chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him, because we have trusted in His holy name. Let Your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Now you could, you could divide this psalm up a lot of different ways, but we're going to look at it under three headings. Here's the first one. Number one, I want to see the call to worship. The call to worship. So the first three verses are a very clear call to worship. This would have likely been used when the, the nation of Israel was gathering together for congregational worship, and it is a command to God's people to worship God. In fact, just in those first three verses, there are five commands given. Notice the five commands in those first three verses. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. Praise the Lord. Make melody to Him. Sing to Him. Play skillfully to Him. Do you see how those are all commands for God's people to worship God through music? Okay, don't miss that. These aren't recommendations from God. This isn't advice from God. These are commands from God. Which means that no Christian is exempt from being involved in musical worship. You get that, church. No Christian is exempt 
from being involved in musical worship. You'll occasionally hear somebody in church who will say something like, you know, I'm just not musical. I don't sing. I don't sing when I'm alone in the shower. I don't sing when I'm driving by myself in the car. Well, that's perfectly fine because God doesn't command you to sing in the shower. And God doesn't command you to sing when you're driving by yourself in your car. But God does command you to sing when you're gathered together with God's people for worship. And remind me, church, when God commands me to do something that I refuse to do, what's that called again? It's called sin. I can actually sin against God by a refusal to worship God through song with the people of God. But that's not even the end of it. So, so not only is it sin, as if that's not enough for me to refuse to sing to God in congregational worship, but a refusal to sing to God in congregational worship is the mark that something is askew in my heart. Because just like it is natural for a bird to chirp and it's natural for a baby to sing, it is natural for those who have found salvation in God to sing to God. Those who have tasted the grace of God can't help but sing to God. Here's the way John Calvin said it, describing these verses. He wrote, There is no better way for them, talking about Christians, there is no better way for them to be employed. Indeed, they have so benefited from His goodness that it would be disgraceful for them to be silent. Yes, indeed. In light of God's goodness, it would be disgraceful of us to remain silent. Okay, but maybe you're reading this psalm and you're thinking, I'm not sure this psalm is even for me because these commands are given to a particular kind of people. He commands the righteous to sing. He commands the upright to praise Him. I'm not sure that I'm in that group. How do I know that this command is even for us? Because the fact of the matter is, there are lots of weeks when I come to our worship services not feeling all that righteous. There are lots of Sunday mornings when I show up and there have been things I've done, attitudes I've had during the week that would not be classified as upright. So how do I know this psalm is even for me? Well, that's where the connection to Psalm 32 is so important. Psalm 33 is an overflow of Psalm 32. And what is Psalm 32 about? It's about the joy of forgiveness. First verse of Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. So who are the righteous that he's talking about here? The righteous aren't those who have lived flawless, pristinely righteous lives. The righteous are those who know the righteousness of God by grace through faith. It's those who have had their sins forgiven by God. It's those who know the good news of having their sins washed clean at the cross. It's those who can really sing, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's who the righteous are. It's those who know the joy of their sin being nailed with Christ to the cross. Those are the ones who Paul, or excuse me, who God here commands to sing. And it's interesting that David actually gives us some important instruction here about how we're to sing. In other words, it's not just that we sing that matters, it's how we sing that matters. I want to highlight three things he tells us about our singing, our musical worship in this call to worship. First, our singing should be fresh. 
And what I mean by that is you'll notice that he says, sing to him a new song. So on the one hand, this is a call for us to keep finding new, fresh ways to worship God. And this is one of the wonderful things about our worship. God is so great, His glory is so infinite, we will never run out of new ways to praise God. We'll never reach a point where we go, okay, the canon of Christian hymns has been closed. There's nothing left to say about God. We'll never reach that point. There will always be new things to say. That, that's why even when you get to Revelation, in Revelation 5, we're told that all the believers in heaven gathered around the throne begin to sing to God a new song. Okay, so that our, our worship is always fresh. Now that doesn't mean we're always only singing new songs. We, we sing a lot of, of old songs here. But it means even when we sing old songs, we, see, we sing those old songs from a fresh experience of the grace of God. What I mean by that is, so for instance, at the end of our service today, we'll be singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That's not a really old hymn. It's only about 100 years old. But that's a hymn that most folks know very well. You might have, you might have sung, Great is Thy Faithfulness, a hundred times over the course of your life in worship. But you realize, just from this week, we have all freshly experienced the faithfulness of God. All you have needed, His hand has provided this week. You've experienced pardon from sin and a peace that endureth this week. So as we sing, great is thy faithfulness at the end of this service, we sing, great is thy faithfulness with hearts that have freshly experienced the grace of God. So Paul's singing, our singing should never be stale as Christians. It should be fresh. Secondly, Paul says, or I keep saying Paul, I don't know why I keep doing that. But our singing should be skilled. Do you notice where David says in verse 3, he commands to play skillfully. So congregational singing is not a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants endeavor. Now that doesn't mean it has to be professional, but it means that it, it shouldn't be sloppy. It shouldn't be careless. Now let me be clear. It is not our skill that makes our worship acceptable to God. It's not that the more skilled we are, the more pleased God is. No. God accepts our worship based on and through Jesus alone. It's not our skill that makes worship acceptable. It's Jesus that makes worship acceptable. Nevertheless, sharpening our musical skills and our talents, being as prepared as we can in our singing, is one of the ways that we're called to glorify God in our musical worship. This is one of the things that we should be so thankful of when it comes to the guys and the ladies who lead us, Justin and Stephen, and this morning Angie was up here with them, is the, the goal of that. I know their goal in that is to be skilled enough to serve you well. Right, that the goal of those who lead us is not to play so skillfully that everybody just stands there slack-jawed listening to how they sing and how they play. No, the goal is for it to be skillful enough so that it aids your singing, it doesn't impede your singing. That's the whole point of this. And so we want to we sharpen whatever skills we have. And I know that's again another point where some of you might be checking out and going, I don't have any skills. I have no musical talent at all. And I would say to you, join the club. 
I have no musical talent. I've mentioned a hundred times. It's one of the greatest things about sitting on the front row during congregational worship is I can sing without being self-conscious about it at all. I can sing without worrying what the people in front of me or behind me might think about my singing. Right? But even for those of us who have no musical skills at all, we still can be prepared in worship. This is why, listen, this is why Mandy spends time every week putting our worship song set on Facebook. The point of that is to prepare us to sing because our congregational singing matters. If you're a member of this church, there is no reason why you would ever come to a worship service and not be familiar with the song that's sung. That's the reason they're posted online. You should be familiar with the tune. You should have thought through the music and the lyrics that we're singing. The skill matters. So he actually gives a command to do this skillfully. Here's the third thing. Number three, our singing should be vibrant, or you might say boisterous or vigorous. Because David says in verse three, play skillfully with a shout of joy. Or your translation might say, play skillfully with a loud shout. The idea is we do this loudly. We don't do it loudly because God's hard of hearing. We do it loudly because it is natural for people to rejoice loudly in the things they delight in. I mean, this college football season is a perfect example, right? Just listen to a group of guys have a discussion about their favorite football team or were college football playoff. Listen to different fan bases arguing over why their team should be in the playoffs ahead of another team. And as those conversations happen, what happens to voice levels? Voice levels rise in excitement. Well, David is making the point here that our, our singing to God should be boisterous like that. Charles Spurgeon, writing of these verses, said, Hardiness should be conspicuous in divine worship. Well-bred whispers are disreputable here. It is not that the Lord cannot hear us, but that it's natural for great exultation to express itself in the loudest manner. Men shout at the sight of their kings. Shall we offer no loud hosannas to the son of David? Listen, this means our singing should not be mousy. It should be vigorous. It should be robust. It should be boisterous. And so we're being commanded here to sing skillfully, to sing fresh songs, to sing boisterously. That's the call to worship. Number two, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, I want to see the calls for worship. Okay, so here's the question that's sort of left, left dangling at the end of verse three. Why should I sing loudly? Why do we need to play skillfully? For what reason? So notice how verse four begins. Just notice the very first word, in fact, of verse four. So verses one through three command us to worship, and then verse four says, for, that could be translated, because the word of the Lord is right. Get what's happening here. So verses 1 through 3 command us to worship. And now beginning in verse 5, or verse 4, we're being told the why. We're to sing because of these reasons. And this is the way, this is the way the Bible almost always operates. Almost always, the Bible doesn't just say, okay, sing. Be loud. No, the Bible almost always tells us why. So it's not like the, 
the poor worship minister who gets up and feels like his job is to work everybody up. Come on now, put a smile on your face. Come on, y'all can do better than that. That's, that's not how the Bible operates. God doesn't just tell us to sing. God then gives us reasons, truth about who he is and what he's done that's meant to compel us to sing. Okay, this is why we start almost all of our worship gatherings reading scripture. It's why we read before we sing. Because it's truth about who God is and what God has done for us that provides the fuel for worship. And what David does here is he gives a lot of fuel. Let me give you a couple things he gives us as causes for worship. Number one, he highlights God's moral character. Verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. God's word is right. That means it's upright. And his work is done in truth. He's saying there's always perfect harmony between God's word and God's work. God never changes his purposes. He never goes back on his promises. Again, Spurgeon said, God writes with a pen that never blots. He speaks with a tongue that never slips. He acts with a hand which never fails. And it's not just that God does what is righteous and just. David makes a point of saying that God loves righteousness and justice. There are people who do what is right because they have to do what is right. There are people you may work with who do what's right because they know a boss is watching them, so they're obligated to do what's right. But David's making the point here, that's not how God functions. God is not obligated to this. God doesn't do this because he has to. God operates this way because he loves it. Righteousness and justice isn't just what God does, it's who God is. And then the psalmist says, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. That word goodness is a word that we have talked about a lot of times as we've studied through the Psalms. It's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. It's a word that is really hard to translate with a single English word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Y'all remember talking about that word before? So you see it translated all sorts of different ways. It's translated goodness. It's translated mercy. It's translated loving kindness. It's translated steadfast love. So Hesed is God's covenant love. It is God's loyal, unbreakable love toward his people. It's the word that Ralph Davis said means love with super glue on it. It is the unfailing, unbreakable, nonstop love that God has for his own. There was a, a pastor who lived back in Scotland in the 1800s. His name was George Matheson. And uh, when he was still a teenager, he began to lose his eyesight. He went to the doctor, found out that he had this incurable eye condition that was very soon going to leave him blind for the rest of his life. Well, George Matheson was engaged when he got that diagnosis. And when he told his fiancée that he was going to go blind, she ended the relationship. She called off the wedding. She couldn't bear the thought of being married to a man who would be blind. Well, George Matheson was brilliant. He ended up writing a couple of theology books before he lost his eyesight, well then that portion of his life was over. He becomes a pastor, a very, very good pastor, even as a blind man. Now remember, this is in a day when there is no uh, American with Disabilities Act. 
There's not a whole lot of accommodations for people with disabilities. Yet, he manages to pastor a church where on a weekly basis, 1,500 people would come to hear the sermons of this blind pastor. But he heavily relied on his sister. He had a sister who he lived with, who helped him, who helped him get around, who aided him in reading things and finding where he needed to go. Well, the day came when a man asked for his sister's hand in marriage. And she said yes, which meant that she wouldn't be able to care for her brother George anymore. Well, the night before his sister was getting married, George Matheson was at home alone, starting to feel sorry for himself. What in the world was he going to do as a blind man without his sister to take care of him? No doubt his mind was drifting back to his own called off wedding that had happened years earlier. Depression was beginning to creep in and in that moment, George Matheson began to think about the steadfast love of God. And he sat down and he wrote a hymn. We've sung it before. It's been a while. But he wrote a hymn. He said he wrote the whole hymn in just five minutes. It's the only hymn he ever, ever wrote that he said he didn't have to edit. And it's the, the song, if you're familiar with it, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Do you know that song? Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go, I Cast my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe. What's he talking about there? He's talking about God's hesed, the love that will not let us go. And David says, the earth is full of that. That means everywhere we look, it's there. As believers, we can't get away from it. And he's saying we should praise God for that. We praise him for his moral character. Secondly, he describes God's creative power. So he set up in verse 4 that the word of the Lord is right. Well, now he's going to drill down into what the word of the Lord does for a minute. Look at verses 6 and 7. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. He says, by God's word, the heavens were made. That, that's clearly drawn out of Genesis 1, right? Where God speaks the universe into existence. God didn't just take some pre-existing material like Play-Doh and shape it into all the planets. No, there was nothing. God spoke, and then there was everything. So how should we respond to that sort of power? And by the way, he doesn't only look up and remind us of the heavens that were made by his voice. He then looks down at the seas. And he reminds us that God is the one who gathered the water together in heaps. You've got to remember in Hebrew culture, they were terrified of the seas. The seas were the ultimate picture of chaos the seas were unpredictable. They were uncontrollable. We, we even experienced that in, in our lives, right? Even with all the technology we have, we every year see of thousands who are killed in floodwaters. You'll remember a few years back when hundreds of thousands were killed by the waters of a tsunami. But now David is describing a God who speaks and the waters recede. This is a God who speaks and water molecules obey the sound of his voice. So how are we to respond to that, God? Look at verses 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. 
Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. We should tremble before such awesome power. What kind of being has the power to speak galaxies into existence? And not just power, what kind of being has the wisdom to order everything that he creates. So David says we should fear. We should stand in awe. It, it reminds me of the conversation I've referred, referred you to before um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, where the children, Lucy, is having a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan. Aslan, of course, is the lion, the ruler of the land, the Christ figure in the book. And the children haven't met Aslan yet. In fact, they've just heard that there is this great lion king named Aslan. And here's how the conversation goes after that. Lucy, considering a lion as a king, says, Is he safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, that, excuse me, Mrs. Beaver says, That you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. The point is, this is no small safe God. He's good, but he's not tame. He's not safe. So he says, let all the earth Fear the Lord. Third, the psalmist highlights God's sovereign rule. Here's another fuel for worship. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord. Notice the contrast between the counsel of the nations and the counsel of the Lord. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. The point here is he didn't just create it all, he governs it all. God rules over the world that he made. Now, we like to imagine that we're in control, don't we? We, we like to make our plans, world leaders like to get together and map out what's going to happen in the world. But we're being reminded here that we serve a God who brings the plans of men to nothing. I make plans all the time that fall apart. I make plans all the time where nothing comes of any of it, but we're being reminded we serve a God whose plans are never thwarted. Remember that as you're watching the news this week. Remember that when you see a politician stand in front of the camera and start bloviating about all he's going to do and all he's going to not do. No, God brings the plans of men and the plans of nations to nothing. But his plan endures. And we're told part of what that unfailing plan is in verse 12. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The point here is, God's plan doesn't just involve empires and jet streams. It involves people. So, so while all the nations make plans that fall apart, God has chosen one particular nation. He's, of course, talking here in the Old Testament about Israel. 
that God created a nation through the descendants of Abraham like He promised. Gentiles now by grace through faith in Jesus are grafted into these blessings. But the point is, God's plan has always included a people that He has chosen as His inheritance. An inheritance, of course, in the Old Testament was something that would remain with a family forever. And so he's saying, God, in his great plan, has chosen a people to be his forever. And notice, these people aren't his because they primarily chose him. They're his because he chose them. This is one of those themes that weaves its way through the whole Bible. The doctrine of election doesn't just suddenly show up in Romans chapter 9. It's there from Genesis to Revelation. We praise God because His plans are immutable. And we praise God because part of that plan is He has a people He has chosen to be His forever. Fourth, we're reminded of God's scrutinizing eye. Look at verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of His dwelling, He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. So God's made it, God rules it, and God sees it. In fact, did you notice how that word all keeps getting repeated? He sees all the sons of men. He looks on all the inhabitants. He considers all their works. The point is, Nothing escapes God's attention as judge. He sees everything. When, when Ty was getting ready this summer to head off to college for his first football camp, I was trying to um, help him be prepared for what's coming. Because when you go off to football camp, um, you're not ready, just, not just for the physical toll, but one of the things you're not ready for are the hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of meetings. You are in meeting rooms endlessly, and you're watching film constantly, not just game film, not just film of opponents. Every drill, every repetition of every single practice is recorded, and every day you watch every rep from the previous day's practice, and it's constant watching. And there is, there's no worse feeling than going into a film room getting ready to watch film knowing that you had a bad day of practice or knowing that there was one particular play that you really messed up on. Maybe you missed a call, you ran the wrong blitz, you got beat badly and you're in the meeting room and you're waiting play by play, play by play for that particular play to come. And you know you're bracing yourself for what's going to happen when that play is, is shown on film. But, but every now and then, you'd get lucky. Every now and then, there would be a play that one of the film guys messed up and missed it. Or they would be splicing together the, the, the different camera angles, and they would mess up and put something out of order. Or maybe the coach would get so focused on some other player's mistake, and he'd spend so much time fussing at the other player, he wouldn't even pay attention to what you did on the film, and you'd get, you'd get by with it. Well, David is making the point here, that never works with God. Nothing ever misses his attention. 
He doesn't just see everything we do. He even makes a point about hearts here. He doesn't just see all of our actions. He knows all of our thoughts. And he sees all of our motives. So what does he see as he looks over the sons of men? Look at verses 16 and 17. Here's by and large what he sees. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. The point is what God sees are people who are trusting in everything but him. He sees kings who are trusting in the size of their army. He sees strong men who are trusting in their strength. He sees wealthy men who are trusting in their horses to give them security. And that's why he says that these things are vain hopes. That means all those things will fail us. The most powerful army in the world is too weak to save us. The, the biggest biceps in the world are too small to protect us. The deepest bank account in the world is far too shallow to ever give us any real security. But as God looks over all the works of men, it's like he sees oceans of people who are trusting in everything but him. Here's the fifth thing we see. We see God's compassionate care. Look at verses 18 and 19. Behold... The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Now, the psalmist here isn't talking about God watching to judge. He's talking about God watching to help. Because notice, he says here that God's eye is on those who fear Him. He's making a point that God watches those who fear him in an entirely different way. He, he even uses the phrase that these are those who hope in his mercy. And you'll notice that word mercy there. It's the same word that was translated goodness earlier that we talked about. This is that same Hebrew word hesed. It's the word for God's uh, faithful, loyal covenant love and he's saying this is it's what it means to be a believer we have put our hope in God's steadfast unfailing unbreakable love and if I can just jump forward with that you realize as much as these Old Testament believers loved to talk about the steadfast love of God we understand it far better than they ever could have because we have seen the steadfast unbreakable love of God put on display in the supreme way We've seen the steadfast love of God put on display in such clear relief for us at the cross. We've seen the extent God went to to make these people his own. As Jesus voluntarily lays his life down on our behalf to redeem us unto God. It's, it's 1 Peter 3 saying that Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He suffered on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin to bring us to God. Because it was our sin that stood in the way. We could never be brought to God as long as our sin was there. Our sin was this giant, unclearable hurdle that stood in the way between us and God. 
But in Christ, at the cross, the full weight and entire debt of our sin was removed and placed on Jesus instead of us. So that now through faith in Jesus, we're brought to God. So we know something of the steadfast love of God that David here in Psalm 33 could only dream of. So God, for those who have placed their hope in his steadfast love, David says, his eye is on us. Not his eyes judge, but his eye as father. It would be like you taking your kids to the park later today. And while you would see every kid running around, your eye would be on your child in a special way, right? So if they start getting a little sideways, you step in to get them back in line. If they get stuck on top of the monkey bars, you step in to help them get down. Your eye, in a special way, is tuned in to your child. That's what David is saying about God here. Those who fear the Lord, those who have found their rest in His steadfast love, Christian, God's eye is glued to you. And He's not watching you just to observe. He is watching you to help. He is watching to protect. He is watching to provide. He is watching to preserve. And for that, He's saying, we should sing to the Lord. And that leads to our third point, quickly. I want to see the cry of worshipers. Look at verses 20 through 22 at how this psalm ends. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Do you see how the tone shifts in this last stanza? Up till now, he's mainly been talking about God. Let all the earth fear the Lord. But do you notice how now it becomes personal? He says, our soul waits for the Lord. And waiting in the Bible is akin to trusting. It's like he's saying, God's love for us is steadfast, so our faith in God is steadfast. We're going to stay. We're going to continue to rely. We're not going to walk away. It's Peter saying in John 6, Where else would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So we wait on the Lord. Or think of Moses. You remember when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt? And they come to the water where the Red Sea's in front and the Egyptian army's closing in from behind and the people begin to panic. They start to complain. We should have just stayed slaves in Egypt rather than come out here and die in the desert. And Moses says, stand firm and see the deliverance of God. In other words, wait on the Lord. Keep trusting in the Lord. And that's what David is saying here. Settle your anxious heart. And trust in the God who created the universe. Settle your anxious heart and trust in the God whose plan rules over the nations. Settle your anxious heart and trust in the God who has a steadfast, unbreakable love for his people. And he says, our heart shall rejoice in you. So we don't stop rejoicing in the waiting. We, we keep doing what he commanded us to do in verses 1 through 3, even as we wait. And then I love how it ends in verse 22. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. Anybody want to take a guess at what that word mercy is a translation of? 
It's that same word we've seen repeated in this psalm, that word hesed, the word for God's faithful, covenant, steadfast, unbreakable love for his people. It's to use George Matheson's words. It's the love that will not let us go. So it's like David is saying, Lord, let your unfailing love rest on us as we rest on you. So get the bookends of this psalm. We worship God in verses 1 through 3 by exuberant singing. And then we worship God, verses 20 through 22, by quiet waiting. We have a God who is worthy of both of those responses. And it's appropriate in a morning when we're seeing repeated examples of God's steadfast, faithful, unbreakable, loyal love. It's appropriate that this would be a morning where we're going to come to the Lord's table. Because that's what the Lord's Supper is reminding us of, right? We come to the Lord's table as a reminder that we're trusting in a Savior who demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. His life was laid down. His blood was shed on our behalf to make us his people.